Welcome to the Open Table Collective Podcast. My name is Danny Cox, and again, we are so grateful that you would spend your valuable time with us listening to this next conversation. We're meeting and talking at the table with Reverend Dr. Craig Mays. He is not only a good friend of the Open Table Collective, but he's also someone that has spent decades in ministry, and in particular, walking alongside people who are struggling with homelessness. His ministry in New York City has really given him incredible insight, and I know that you and I are going to be shaped and changed and molded differently at the end of this conversation. If you'd like to know more about The Open Table Collective, please just go to our website. It's theopentablecollective.com. You can also sign up for our texting community, which is 248 Four two two zero zero eight two. So just text hello to two four eight four two two zero zero eight two, and we'll make sure that you're signed up so you can always stay connected. Well, here we are again at the open table. You know that you are welcomed here. Pull up a chair. Let's wrestle with these thoughts together, and let's move hopefully to a place of well-being and flourishing together. So I'm here in our studio uh, with someone that is very dear to me, Reverend Dr. <laughs> Craig Mays. Yeah, thank you for all that. <laughs> you want to put PhD at the end just to make sure oh, it's wow. not some phony doctorate, you know, I, I bought through the mail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I remember uh, you talked about how Reverend actually trumps doctor. Is that true yes. or did you just make that up? Uh, well, I might have made it up. I don't know. <laughs> the reality is that uh, sometimes t- titles put people off a little bit. So I'm just Craig, yeah, and you're just Danny, and I yeah. appreciate our friendship all these years. Yeah, I laugh about it, but it's uh, but you really have been. In fact, you were you were the first person in my life that spoke into me the idea that maybe I could be a pastor, maybe I could mm-hmm. be a teacher, and you even gave me a, a moment on a stage to share and said, "Hey, I, this is what I see in you." and there's very few people that you meet in your life that look into you and say, this is what I see in you. Mm. And I think that's a, a a very core trait to the person of Jesus. Mm. Because every person that Jesus met, I really do believe that he looked in their eyes and said, this is what I see in you. You see it all throughout yeah. with his disciples. Yeah. You see it with strangers. So I just appreciate that about you, no. and I'm glad. And welcome to the Open Table Collective. No. Uh, we call you our table leader. So you are the okay. table leader for this episode uh, of our podcast, and welcome. Yeah, it's so good to be here. So for today, we're going to get into a topic that we've been talking about through all these early episodes, which is essentially how do we widen our lens mm. um, by noticing more and more people and how they, their lens and how they see Jesus, how they see their neighbors, how they see themselves in the world, how that informs our lens and widens our view of Christ. There's a great uh, writer, Marcus Borg, that talks about there's always more to God. There's never less. Mm. A good friend of mine says that too. That's the difference between other mm. religions and, and Christianity is you think you get to the bottom of something or you try to get to nothingness and there actually is more and more and more and more. Mm. That's why I can see for eternity yeah. to praise yes. God, right? Um, but <sighs> so we're going to we're gonna talk about that lens through your personal experiences and maybe even your growth, but mm. I would I would really think our our listeners would benefit from just hearing a little bit, uh, you know, short kind of synopsis of your journey. I mean, how yeah. did you become a reverend? How did you become a doctor? <laughs> you know, how did you become a mentor and a pastor sure. and a leader? I, I could take up our whole time with this, so I'll yeah. try to be brief. So 
I grew up in a very conservative, I would call fundamentalist Christian home. My parents weren't, you know, that crazy, uh, you know, deep into the fundamentalism, but the church was. And so that early on formed my view of God. And my my perspective was that um, I needed God so I wouldn't go to hell. Mm. So when I was young, I confessed what they told me to confess. I don't think I understood much of it. And that got me saved. So that was like a fear-based... It was fear. I was, you know, escaping hell. And, and then the point is to, you know, do as good as you can. Mm-hmm. Like, don't sin very much. That The Bible was a rule book. And then when you die, you go to heaven. So... My eyes uh, for all of us were really on the not on the horizon, but kind of lifted up to heaven for that day when we would be with God, and that was the limit of the good news. That's that's it. That's always a fascinating thing because I think I have that too from my background, different kind of background but similar. And you, so you were saved for what was to come, but you weren't saved for how right. you would actually yeah. live now. I mean, we said the Lord's prayer: "Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven." But we skipped over that word and looked to heaven, and so. Oh, wow. You know, so for me, I grew up in that. I went to a, a Bible college and then a, a non-denominational seminary. And the thing, the best thing about that seminary, is they really didn't just indoctrinate us. They taught, they began to teach us to think. And so by that time, I'm you know 22 years old. I know the Bible pretty well, um, but I was I began to be challenged by things that didn't add up easily, mm. like just consternation. So there was a kind of a theological upheaval that I went through in my 20s. I, I, I tell people when I was in seminary, I was an agnostic for about half of it. I was just so confused. Oh, but wow. but then I began to be challenged to, you know, well, God, of course, is bigger than my understanding. Yeah. He's, he better be. And so I, I just began to develop a, a hunger to learn. And so a lot of that learning for a decade or so was very academic. I got more degrees. Um, I decided I wasn't called to be a pastor. <laughs> and I would have been a horrible <laughs> pastor in my 20s, seriously. Uh, but I got a degree, a couple degrees in counseling, in counseling psychology, and went into academics and taught in an academic environment, grad and undergrad. Uh, began to do counseling with people, and then um, at a certain point, God showed me clearly that He wanted me to move into the church. Mm. Uh, so I did that, um, and I, I would say an awakening. A couple things happened for me. The most important one was I realized that I knew about God, and I put my degrees on the wall to prove it. But I didn't feel like I knew him. Like oh, wow. there was an experiential part lacking. Yeah. Because I wasn't raised to even think about that. I yeah. mean, our the Trinity was the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. So <laughs> uh, seriously, so we worshiped the Bible, uh, and, and, and the Holy Spirit was an it, not a person. And so I began to discover in my 30s and into my 40s that God wanted me to know Him. Gnosko, the Greek word, is not yeah. information; it's experiential. Yeah. And as that began to change, I began it began to change what I saw. Like I would say, slowly my eyes went from heaven to the horizon, and realize that I'm alive for a reason, and it's to grow the kingdom of Jesus. What a great image! My eyes went from heaven to the horizon. That's yeah. a song. Yeah, okay, well, <laughs> we gotta we'll, write it. <laughs> okay, that's our next meeting. No, that's yeah. really that's a great image. Thank you for that. I just didn't want our listeners to pass over that. Yeah. So, I, I, but I would say the catalytic event was when I moved to uh, Kensington Church. In the first year I was there, uh, I got invited to go to India. There was someone that. We had just met that was doing a work there, and so I went with uh, Steve Andrews and our daughters, and my daughter was 12, and it just literally was like a wrecking ball coming into my life. I was I remember sitting there, and my daughter cried the whole time, because mm. she, through the tenderness of her age, saw the suffering. She saw the children walking the streets naked. She saw the 50 or so children that we had brought into a house that were living in horrible situations, but at least they wouldn't die. Mm. just broke her heart. And so I was watching her respond to it, and then I was sitting there with all my knowledge in my head, like this, like for example, uh, pure religion that God finds faultless is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Well, he had brought widows and orphans in off the street and was caring for them, and I thought, I knew the verse, I preached on the verse, I memorized the verse. Yeah. 
never did one thing to lift a finger for an orphan or widow. Wow. How could I be at this point in my life and that be reality? And then Matthew 25, you know, when yeah. I was hungry, when I was thirsty, like that was right in front of me yeah. within my grasp. And I thought, I've, I've, I've taught that passage before. I, it's not been a, an important part of my life at all. Uh, maybe uh, I think we did a Compassion International Child for a number of years. We did a little here and there, dabbled in it. Yeah. But suddenly I realized that this is God's earth and most of the earth does not look like what I have in America, and I have to do something about it. Mm. It just, it was a catalytic moment in my life to, to change, and I, I came back uh, to the U.S. from India, a changed person, and realized you don't have to go to India to find people in the margins. They're right here in our communities. Yeah. So that eventually led me to New York, uh, working with the homeless there. Yeah, and I and that's, I, I do want to get to that point. I want to clarify something just for our listeners, that Kensington is a church in the Detroit area, large church, and Steve Andrews mm-hmm. is the, was the lead pastor and founder mm-hmm. of that church, and both you and I worked in that environment. It's a beautiful environment, and I, I would say that our family went through a very similar thing. James 127 is is a life verse for me, so, you know, and, and I love that verse, you know, mm-hmm. that religion that God finds pure and faultless is this, you know, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress, and then the last part, and do not become polluted by the world. And it's it's such a, 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 a central theme, and that verse, too, is one that broke us wide open when we went to Honduras and we met our daughters mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things, and our kids had a similar experience. Probably not, maybe not as dramatic, but they had a similar experience mm. to see their lenses widened, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, Matthew twenty-five, and uh, that that we're really called to mm. take care of the ones that are on the margins yeah. and that are in need. So, um, for you, so New York happens. So you, you and I were, you know, working together at that point. Yeah. You were leading a, a large church in the Detroit area, and you really felt a call to New York. And yeah. this is, I, but. Before the call to New York, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, yeah. But before the call to New York, your eyes were even widened further, right? Yeah. Well, I, um, you know, I think that like that first trip to India, I I pulled out my camera, and it was one that you had to have film, like to get it. You know, the film <laughs> it's actually old developed old school. And I, it's I a went, Polaroid. I, I went and I took pictures of. All 50, at that time, 50 kids about that had been brought in off the street. Oh, wow. I took pictures of all of them, and I came back to our church, and I stood in the lobby for weekends. I had no infrastructure, no plan to get supporters for them. Oh, and I, I didn't know that. I got wow. 50 supporters. I had, I had double copies. You'd pick one, and I'd write your name down, and then I would mm-hmm. keep one, put your name on it. And then, then we developed an infrastructure, eventually formed a 501c3 that would support the work in India. We raised a lot of money and then all this other stuff is going on. Yeah. But the thing that had shifted for me was was the idea that these children there became not statistics or numbers. They became my daughters and my sons. I felt the pain so deeply. I, I did this first trip right before Christmas and came back and three days later we're doing Christmas and all the money and commercialism around this thing. <laughs> I just I was um, I was hard to be around. My wife will tell you that I was <laughs> I was miserable and made everybody else miserable. But I had to integrate a level of reality um, into my life. And and I would say I struggle with some depression, anger, like this is not right. I began to feel this issue of justice, yeah, which is so prevalent in scripture. And I thought, how can there be hundreds of references to justice in the Bible? And as someone who's been a pastor now for decades, been involved in discipleship and spir- spiritual formation, gave so little attention to it. I could just read over these passages. And now, every time I read something, they were it was jumping off the page. Right. And, um, you know, I was raised where they caught, they had something called the social gospel, mm-hmm. and that was a big enemy. Oh, yeah. And what it was is you're watering down the good news that God will forgive your sins and take you to heaven when you die. Right. And I'm beginning to read the Bible saying, well, I think that's part of it, but 
he gave us a job to do, and it's right now, and I'm not dead yet. And if I'm not looking with open eyes around me, so I began to see things I'd never seen. Yeah. And even, you know, one of our favorite stories as teachers is is a parable of the Good, uh, Good Samaritan. Yeah. And three times we have the same expression in the Greek that the priest saw, the Levite saw, mm-hmm. in their case, they walked by. Right. And then it says the Samaritan saw, same word. Right. And he felt. Right. Compassion. And then he acted. Yeah. So I now read that story with fresh eyes saying, oh, I've always been the priest and Levite. I didn't realize that. Mm. That was me. That's that parable. I've learned since then. By the way, when you read parables, you're usually not the hero. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that I began to say, okay, what does God see? And and so, like I would say, my my life branched into all areas of what we would call justice. If biblical justice is social justice, um, because God care, social is people, and God loves people more than anything. So right. it's not a bad term. Um, I want to recover that term back and say this is what God has called us to do: is care about all elements of society. So I began to, I mean, everything from racism to gender discrimination to everything. Yeah. Like God is about all of this. But the particular thing uh, that came into my heart was poverty. And I don't know if we'll get into this today at all, but poverty and racism uh, go hand in hand. Yeah. You can't separate them. Right. Homelessness, you can't separate them. Right. Yeah, I think all of those, in fact, that's one of the aspects that we're working on, even at the Open Table Collective, is how do we rethink our whole idea mm-hmm. of being pro-life and how do we see all of these issues as a human life issue, uh, Mm. not just one particular part of that and Mm. not separating them. So, uh, but I don't know if we'll be able to get into that kind of thing. Um, So when I do love the Good Samaritan story because I do think that it's a great uh, segue into seeing. So you Mm. can see things for a long time and then all of a sudden you can really see something. And mm-hmm. we and we go through that in marriage, or mm-hmm. we go through that in our own life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a very natural human thing. You, yeah. you see the same person for 10 years, and all of a sudden, 10 years and one day later, you see a different level mm-hmm. of this person or a different aspect yeah. of them. So, But in terms of seeing, there was a moment where you told me um, about your experience with the homeless in New York. Yeah. And how for years you never saw them. And maybe yeah. I'm rem- misremembering this story, but I remember you telling me a story almost as if I used to step over them or walk yeah. by them or never notice them. And then yeah. all of a sudden, walk in the streets of New York for whatever reason, you you were the Good Samaritan yeah. you know, in that city and your yeah. eyes were open. Is that yeah. fair? Is that a story? Yeah. That- you know, when, when we first moved to New York, one of the real obvious things was the level of homelessness. I mean, it's over 100,000 you know, homeless men, women, and children, it's way more than that now, I think, wow. on the streets. So you can't go anywhere without seeing them. And they often have their sign out in their cup. And, you know, it was easy to think, well, if I give money to everyone that needs help, I'm going to be on the streets myself. And so you get, you can easily get to the point where you just start, you stop seeing. And, um, and you just walk by and you walk over. And I think that's where my trajectory was heading. We went to New York not specifically to uh, serve the homeless. We we went out of obedience to God. We did uh, feel like we were to step into the, the darkest places. And so we began to volunteer in places where it, it would bring us in proximity yeah. to people. But I still think that it, the problem is so overwhelming that you feel like, well, I don't know how to solve this. And and so I think that there was, um, there was a, a season where I was becoming a little bit uh, anesthetized to... Mm what the situation was. But we kept volunteering at uh, like soup kitchens and food pantries and delivering food and doing that. So it was getting me in proximity yeah. uh, to people. And I don't know if there was one moment, but there was a time time period where 
what was a statistic and a number and a problem to be solved, they became people. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and, and not just people, but these are assets in the city that are draining, uh, draining the city, but they're an asset to be recovered. Mm. Like what's behind uh, this person, the, the veneer of they, they're dressed poorly, they smell bad, some of them are addicted, there's mental illness, it's all mixed in together, but is there a, a human being there that I could actually discover? And it was in proximity that that began to happen. And then it got harder to walk by. <laughs> right. I mean, it, impossible. I remember one night, there, it, was, it was 15 degrees out. And that's when the homeless are really in danger. Yeah. And I was going to the drugstore to get a prescription. And there's a guy in the sidewalk, uh, passed out. Hmm. And I went by him. And then this, I guess, awakening that was happening said, you can't do that. You can't do that. I think the thought was something like, that's your brother. Like, what if that's actually your brother? Wow, wow. I have four, bro- three brothers. Would you do that? Well, of course not. I would stop. So, okay, that's your brother. That was a thought. That's your brother. So I went back. Um, I could smell the alcohol. I could see where he had thrown up. This is a messy situation. Yeah. It's 15 degrees. What am I going to do? So I call the police, um, and then I run back to my apartment. I get a sleeping bag because I know I'm not sure what the police are going to do. And I come back, and I'm literally on the sidewalk lifting up his legs and trying to pull a sleeping bag up over him, and I'm waiting to see if the police can come. Wow. And I don't want to, you know, be negative about the police force or the the first responders there, but they deal with this so much. Oh, it's overwhelming. And, I'm and sure. sometimes they know the person, saying, "Yeah, we picked him up yesterday, and here he is again." So when they got there, I actually got chastised and lectured by by the responders a little bit, saying, "You know, you're a do-gooder, but you're not really helping people." And I thought, I help someone not freeze to death, right? And it's only one out of a hundred thousand. So suddenly it was shifting into, I have to do more. So we were we had a church that had started, and we were helping a little bit. We were volunteering these areas. Well, God, I over the next two years brought me to the point where He said, "This is your calling now." Wow. So um, our church still exists, um, but it shifted into a church for the homeless. And now, any given Sunday, we have ninety percent, ninety five percent are homeless. You've been there before. Oh yeah, you've seen it. My wife, Chris, leads that church now, and I work for her when I'm in town <laughs> so a few times a month. But um, And then I also became the director of uh, America's first and oldest mission, working with the poor, it started in the 1870s. And that that was what really kicked in the transformation for me. Yeah, and I want you to speak about that in a moment. I, I, I want to go back and pick up on a word that I think is really important. This morning, I started a new book, and it's speaking of uh, well-being and flourishing. That's one of our tenets for our uh, open table as well, is, is how, do, how can we be part of well-being and flourishing? Uh, maybe you call that social justice. I have no idea, but I I would I call it well-being and flourishing of every human being. And one of the very first things in the beginning of this book is proximity. You have to be mm-hmm. proximate to the people as you get closer to someone. And and it's so at the heart of the gospel that God would come mm-hmm. close. Yeah, that He would embody Th- that's humanity. That's the whole that nature comes, of the incarnation. Right. It's the whole it's the whole nature of the incarnation. But the, but we miss that many yeah. times. People become theories or ideas or even the other, someone that we don't want to get close to, someone that we build our lives around to get away from. Yeah. And uh, so that truth that you're giving us as a community to say, hey, proximity is key to all of these things. If we want our yeah. heart to be moved, if we want our compassion to be opened up, we want our vision to get wider, we have to come close. Yeah. Well, and if I were to ask our listeners to think, what are um, when you say homeless or homelessness, yeah. what pops into mind? And unfortunately, and I'm sure your listeners are actually far more educated, but uh, a friend of mine runs a, a nonprofit in New York City for the homeless, and he posted a blog the other day, 
And the re- comments, most of them, or many of them were so awful. Like, these guys are lazy. They need to get jobs. They need to, like the stereotype that they're lazy. Uh, they're just all addicts. Uh, mm-hmm. They're all, they don't want to work. If there's a way out, if they could get out. I mean, all these uh, stereotypes about them, which tells me that they've never actually spent any time, probably, right. with a homeless person. And I, one of the things that I learned, it was hard to do because when you have eye contact with someone on the street who's homeless, <laughs> yeah. then they're thinking, oh, good, payday, something's going to happen. Mm. But um, I got to where I wasn't carrying food, um, money. I would carry granola bars and things, but I would stop and say, listen, what's your name? Uh, Frank. They're shocked. Because as I get to know Frank over time, because he might be on my street for months, yeah. um, he says, nobody talks to me. I, I become invisible. I'm a stench to people. Wow. Um, so when you stopped and asked my name, I, I said, what is this? I felt actually a little nervous or frightened. Are you going to do something? And then you asked me my story. Nobody asked me my story. I have a story. Um, this taught me, by the way, something that's so obvious, but there's no person that when they were a child growing up playing make-believe in the neighborhood with their friends was imagining they'd be homeless someday. Yeah, They pretended that they were doctors and nurses and teachers and movie stars, and they did their imagination. They wanted everything I wanted. Something obviously went very bad and very wrong, and here they are. They're ashamed. Wow. They're frustrated. They're disgusted. They want out. So just when you begin to humanize and personalize, yeah, everything changes. And that's the proximity, Danny, Man. that you were talking about. You got to get close. Someone told me one time, when you look someone in the eyes and ask them their name, you're giving them dignity. Mm. I don't know if that's the right way to look at it, but... You're acknowledging them. You're saying we're connected, you know. Yeah. And when you and then when you go a step further and say, "Tell me your story," uh, now you're entering into their life. And and man, it's just such a power. It's so simple. Like think yeah. about how simple that is. Oh, it is. And, and we don't even do it sometimes to our very closest neighbors, let alone the stranger yeah. in the street, or let alone the one that that we're fearful to engage with. Yeah. You know. Um, when you became the director of the mission. So I like you said I I I I've been there a few times and it is an incredible community. But what I noticed about you cuz we've walked streets around there together. Mm-hmm. Um as you walk, you know so many people. <laughs> but then also when you come into the mission and there's a lot of there's a lot of people in there worshiping God. Some of them are sleeping, yeah. you know, some are getting some warmth or whatever they need for that day, which is great. I found that you have a lot of friendships. Yeah. And can you talk oh, about sure the friendships that you've, you know, cultivated in that community yep. and then what has come out of that friendship? Well, that I, I think God just put this in my heart. I came in as a CEO. That's a big title. I have a staff. We have lots of programs. Um, but what I felt was that more important than whatever title or job description or whatever is that I'm a human being with human beings yeah. who are suffering and I'm here to help. And, and so um, I did things that CEOs don't do. For example, um, I was running at that time and, and running marathons and training. Yeah. So I would take my suit off. I had to wear a suit for a while as a CEO. I'd take my suit off at four o'clock and I would go down the lobby and the guys that were homeless that were in recovery knew that if they wanted to join me at 4.30, they could. And they were in bad shape and they were still smoking. They'd, they'd actually have a smoke before we'd start the run. But we began to run together along the Hudson River. Wow. Three or four miles. Yeah. And, uh they would say things like, I can't believe you're like hanging out with us, which again, think incarnation. I know. God didn't send a team of you know experts. He came himself. And so why, why would I not do that? And out of that came one of my closest friendships was with a guy named Charles, a man named Charles who was a 30-year crack addict. And he ended up eventually running a marathon with me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, we would go to we go to movies together. We would hang out. This is um, this is the nature of what God has called us to do, and, it, and it's messy. I got I got a text this morning from a guy that came out of an opiate addiction, and he's got an apartment. He's working, but he's st- struggling still. He texted me this morning saying, "I can't live anymore. I'm taking my life now." Oh. And it just broke my heart because this is hard work. But um, and I'm not in New York right now. I'm in Michigan. Yeah. But I text two people that are part of the community, and they already they've already reached out to him. And wow. he says, "You know what? I'm going to go upstate with my family. I'm going to try to overcome this." So it's not easy stuff. But who said it's going to be easy? It's yeah. going to be hard, but it's rewarding because you see the power of friendship and community and the gospel to to transform people. Side note to that for our listeners, I think it's really important what you just said. Um, whenever we talk about potential suicide or those kinds of situations, we always know that there's a lot of resources, and the, some of the biggest resources is just a phone call to yep. someone that is 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 proximate to yep. that person. Um, but yeah, I thank you for that, and there's a lot of resources for that too. Yeah. Uh, so. And I did. I told him. Um, he said, "Don't text me back." But I texted him back and said, um, "Go to the hospital right now, please." Right. And a, a couple of people are going to reach out to you, and so. Anyhow, um, but all that to say that, you know, the reward of this comes for me as a CEO, less out of what I did in my office and raising money and doing all that was actually the human connection. And I taught my staff two things. I said, we will never say a homeless person. Yeah. We're going to put homeless after. Here's a person who doesn't have a home right now. Because hmm. it's a, such a stigma, but it doesn't define who they are. It's it's an element of suffering and struggle right now at this point in their life. But sometimes when you leave with homelessness, you can't get to the person word. So uh, we just flipped it. Yeah. Here's a man, here's a woman, here's a child who doesn't have a home. Can you imagine that? Every all, Everybody listening to this, wherever you are, probably you can picture where you're going to go to bed tonight. Yeah. Your pillow, your blanket, the heat's on. So that's yeah. we take that for granted. Imagine what it's like. So these are people who are in trauma. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I really think it's important... To pick up on your theme too of the idea of don't put the circumstance before the person, because that's even in our own life, you yeah. know. Oh, this is an alcoholic. His name is Pete, you know, or yeah. whatever. This is this person's, you know, situation. Um, you know, again, we're always thinking image of God, beloved yes. brother, sister, uh, fellow human. You know, we belong to each other. You know, you, I've said this a million times, but I always hold this Mother Teresa thing so close. It's when there's a lack of peace, it's forgotten. You know, it's because we've forgotten we belong to each other. It, it's it's belonging. It's true yeah. belonging. It's true home. It's it's all of mm. those kind of things that God mm. really came to manifest here for yeah. us and for us to live it out. Yeah. Let's make a shift into justice if we can, and, mm-hmm. and and we may be going down a bit of a rabbit trail here, but I think it is hand in glove. What are some of the themes you see in scripture or particular scriptures or things that you hold on to or something you can give our listeners and me too to kind of root ourselves into this kind of vision, this kind of work? Well, I want to identify a real simple one that isn't talked about very much. My friend that I referenced who runs a a nonprofit in New York, his name is Josiah. It's a good Old Testament name. Mm -hmm. Josiah was one of the kings. Yeah. And he was one of the good kings. And I'm not going to remember the passage of scripture. Uh, it's in Chronicles, I think, mm-hmm. someplace. You you can look it up later if you want. But it's talking about how, why he was a good king, and he says he wasn't like his father. And it says because Josiah um, uh, cared for the uh, poor and the homeless. You go, that defined a good king. Wow. Like, I almost don't need more than that. Like, what defined <laughs> right. his reign as a good yeah. king is he saw the people that were invisible. He saw the people that were not cared for. Um, so you you go to you can go to the Old Testament, you can go to the New Testament, you can find this theme repeated. Um, 
I, we referenced Matthew 25. I know that is kind of oversighted uh, use, but the reality is that this is a parable Jesus tells about the end of the age. Yeah. So when I think about this and when I talk about it with people, I say, try to use your imagination to picture this. End of the age means that all of human history is now coming to this final point where God's going to bring full redemption, and it's going to be beautiful. The new heaven, new earth. By the way, it's another topic, but we don't go to heaven and float around for eternity. We, it, It's going to be far better than we could even imagine. We're going to live and create and all of that. So that's coming. We're almost there. And it says that the Son of Man comes in all of his glory. So now don't picture Jesus sandals and a robe, walking the dusty uh, you know, roads of Israel. This is him coming in all of his glory now. Yeah. And it says he gathers all the nations yeah. and all the angels. Mm. So if we can use your imagination to picture this, I picture him there and he's going to say something. So a hush falls. Right before we finally now move into the beautiful future promised to us, what is the last conversation he wants to have with humanity, with all the angels listening in? I, I can get emotional when I think about totally. this because it says, when I was hungry, yeah. you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you took care of me. Yeah. And of course, when did we see this? And he says, when you did it to right. one of the least of these. Yeah. Um, I would say, what more do we need? Right, and when you do it to that one, you're doing it directly to Christ. Right. Gosh. And then, then, then just let's just rewind to Luke chapter four, where we have Jesus' first recorded message, and he's in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll, and it's Isaiah, <laughs> yeah. and he says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach that you can go to heaven when you die." <laughs> no, now I'm not saying that that's not part of what we the good news we get to right. share. Yeah. But what is the first thing out of the mouth of the Son of God, God incarnated, when He's now going to start for three years declaring the kingdom? What does He say? It's to proclaim good news to the poor, yeah. recovery of sight to the blind, and so on and so forth. It's lifting oppression, people in oppression. Yeah. And then, of course, he does it. That's what he does. Luke 4 is the, um, the template for what he does now for the next three years. And I, uh, I, I'm probably, um, because of my upbringing, I, I get on this, I camp on this a little too much, but I, I would challenge everyone to read the Gospels. I started 25 years ago with a commitment to read a chapter in, a one chapter in a gospel every morning or every day. And I miss sometimes, but pretty much been doing that. Yeah. And it becomes very clear um, what Jesus' mission on earth was and what he's invited us to. He didn't talk about heaven very much. Right. And he would have groups of people he would with where it would never come up. But he cared about people and their current existential experience. He yeah. cared for them. Yeah. And so we need to do both. Care for the soul, care for the body. Uh, it's so abundantly clear. So when someone says social justice, I said, oh, you've never read the Gospels? Because <laughs> exactly. you see it all over the place. And he elevated women. He elevated the, the foreigner, um, the, you know, the immigrant. Uh, all of that was elevated. And of course, you can see it in the Old Testament. It's rooted there as well. Yeah. You know, God, God was for all nations. He, you know, even to say Israel was a chosen people, chosen to bless the whole earth, not right. because they were favored above exactly all. Exactly right. So we missed a lot of that message, and we're not paying attention to what's around us in the, in the wonderful mission of bringing as much of heaven on earth as we can. I would say every place you see that doesn't look like heaven, we step into it. Wow. And if we just Great pray challenge. about it, then we're the guy praying on the corner, but not doing anything, which Jesus talked about that. Right. I mean, I, I really hold on to that. It's a twofold thing. And prayer is in incredibly important, obviously. But it's, you know, my example has always been Jesus in the garden. He's prayed for hours, you know, to the yeah. point where blood was was coming out of his forehead. 
But when he was done, he got up and he went to the cross. He went, right. it was, it was action oriented. Right. He, you know, so it is both of those together. Yeah. How do we start to shift that narrative of justice? Because be, the way it's been handled is certainly over the last several years with the kind of political rhetoric that's been going on, the social kind of situations we found since the pandemic, justice has been one of the hot topics where it, you have to make sure it's biblical justice, not social justice. You know, it, it, social justice is considered woke and it's considered liberal and progressive. Biblical is conservative and the right way or the historically right way to view justice. Is there a way we can, do you have any advice for us to disentangle that a bit? And mm. is it a, do we have to redefine it? Do we have to come up with different wording? Um I don't know. I'm just curious how you have approached that, maybe yeah. some wisdom that you could give us, because I'm just tired of the polarized political yeah. thinking about justice. Yeah, that's a that's like almost a separate topic. I, I have too much to say about that, but I'll try to... And just a I'll little bit for succinct. us, just because yeah. we're talking about... Well, I, I think that that's, that it's an issue of the heart. Mm. Um, if we walk, If we can make a commitment to walk closely with God, then we will... Uh, see what he sees, and we will love what he loves, and we will do what he does. So when I'm not doing that, I've I and I'm saying me because I've lived a good part of my life this oh, way, me too, I with lots of blind you. spots. And I feel, I feel the natural progression of faith is toward Phariseeism. It's been in my life. That's yep. a natural progression. You you think you know it, you got it, you got it down. Now you you really get you get it in concrete. You dig your heels in, and this is truth. And then you begin to judge everything outside of that. Right. And then you feel like God got a pretty good deal when He got you because you are the one person on planet Earth. Who, <laughs> he's got your theology right. You got your lifestyle right. And of course, internally we know better than that because we see our own brokenness, but <laughs> right. we find a way to gloss it over. So we do what the Pharisees did. We clean the outside of the cup, inside. Right. So I think this is a hard issue because, like I said, if you if you love someone in your life, another human being, you really love them, then you care about what they care about even if it's not natural. You begin to because you see the joy it brings them. Yeah. So maybe you're married to someone that that loves football and you hate it, but you know they love them so much, you'll find a way to watch the Super Bowl with them and even go to a game with them, et cetera, because that's what love does. It changes, your your, your focus goes from um, self-centric to other-centric. Yeah. So I think that's what the gospel is supposed to do to us. And that's God sees it all, he loves it all, he cares for it all. And if we don't, if we hide behind pejorative words and terms, and 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 that's our that's like our our where we feel safe and certain. Yeah. You use the word curious. You were curious. I think curiosity. I would say to your listeners, if if you have uh, concerns about w- what wokeism is and whatever, make sure that you understand it. Like do the work. Yeah. Uh, be curious. Well, how could someone come to that opinion? I don't agree with them, but let me do the work of trying to understand at least. Yeah. Instead of just putting a label in a category and then you know doing a Facebook post or an Instagram post against that person, like why don't we stay in dialogue and stay curious and open and humility have humility to learn? Yeah. Um, because I it, it's kind of puzzling to me that people I know love God and they know they read the scriptures and they love the Bible and they they're they're trying to build their lives on the foundation of the Bible, but it's all through history people have done that and done awful things in the name of the Bible. Right. Why would we be any different? Yeah. Like really. So I think there has to be an openness to say, I might have some things to learn here. I might have some biases I'm not aware of. Um, what's the harm of listening? Yeah. What's the harm of moving even into proximity with someone that you disagree with? You know, I had a, I had a conversation not too long ago with someone who was just upset about, it feels like Christianity is getting softer and weaker and all this justice. And they said to me, why, why can't we just 
follow the plain truth of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that so well, many times. And, and I, like, what plain, what plain truth do you have today? Well, here's what I said to him. I said, I drove about 20 uh, minutes to get here to meet you. And I, I did a little experiment on the way, knowing what we were going to talk about. I counted how many churches. And I went by 25 churches. Right. And if I brought 25 pastors from those churches in right now to this coffee shop, <laughs> they you, would tell and, you the and there are so many different Bible. topics we could bring up and say, what's the plain truth of the Bible? We would find there's lots of disagreement. Right. So to me, that should not create frustration. That should say, well, of course, God is so beyond us, and we're all pilgrims trying to discover who God is. Right. So let's accept that fact, and then let's be in conversation with each other. So if you're concerned about social justice as having a political agenda only, and it, it's unbiblical, then I would ask you, you know, are there some books that you've read on this? Read the alternative point of view, and not to be convinced by it, but to understand. Yeah. You might come away having not changed your mind at all, but at least you've made the effort to listen. That's really good. This morning I was reading the phrase, what does love require in this moment? Mm. And maybe we'll end with this. Are there certain practices that you have and are there certain phrases that you repeat to yourself as mantras? You know, I had a good friend of mine, Bill Kaiser, he passed away uh, last year and he was a I was an addict for 40 some years, but at the last 20 years of his life, he had an incredible mm. encounter. But he had a mantra to help him always overcome mm. his addiction. And mm. he would just say, Lord, I don't want to do this, help me. Lord, I don't want to do mm. this, help me. You know, And he said, Danny, you always have to have a mantra. Not that you do have a, a mm. specific mantra, maybe you do, but, but can you just give our listeners and myself just a, f- a few more practical ideas yeah. that, you, that could potentially, as we leave from this podcast and we go out into our circumstances, we just might notice someone that yeah. we've never noticed before. Yeah, I could, I could share a couple things. Um, it'd be hard to distill it to one, but yeah. I would say this is like, we say this all the time, but if you could hear it with fresh ears... Um, if we abide with Jesus, then we'll be fruitful. So the, my mantra is, is I'm going to walk with you today. Oh, I like that. Um, because I'm going to walk somewhere, and he's always with me, but I'm not always with him. He's all, He promised to always be with me, but I can go days and not be with him. So if I'm not consciously with him, I'm not going to see what he sees. I'm not going to be responsive to the moment. I'm not going to be willing to be interrupted and stop and care for this person on the street or whatever I might do, yeah. um, because I'm not really attentive. So um, I cherish and value and protect my time every day um, to be alone with him and in, in, in with him. And I, I read scripture, as I said, the gospels every day and other scripture. I have, I have books that I read that challenge me. I have a journal I write in every day. I have five pray, prayers that I pray every morning from scripture. There, It's Psalm 23, it's Isaiah 26, 3, it's Ephesians 3, Ephesians 1, and it's the Lord's Prayer. Do it every day. Beautiful. Um, and those center me, and two of those in Ephesians are um, really a prayer asking that God would enlighten the eyes of our heart. Like, And then I wear this thing on my wrist. Um, it's from the People's Improv Theater in New York City, because it has a saying here that says, I'm either now here or nowhere. Wait, say it again? I'm either now here or nowhere. It's the same letters, wow. but separated. In, yeah, yeah. So, uh, which means I need to be present. So when I say I'm going to walk with you today, it means I'm going to be present. Like right now, I'm with you in your studio. I've got things to do this afternoon. I'm not going to go there in my mind because I'm here with you. So if I'm with someone in a coffee shop, if I'm with a person on the street, uh, this Sunday I'll be uh, at our Communitas Church in New York City, um, and I'll be around, you know, dozens or fifty or a hundred homeless men and women. That's that's where I'm going to be, attentive, 
Who is this? God, what are you saying to me? What, what are you feeling? Help me see what you see. So that, that's been the biggest shift of trying to stay focused on the here and now with Jesus with me present so I can learn from him. I want to get a picture of that and bracelet because I think that's what we should name this episode. Now here or nowhere. <laughs> oh, it's so perfect. So yeah. thank you for that. I, and... I have I have one story I'd like to finish with, and I know that if this gets too long, you can cut it. Um, oh, that's fine. But no, this no. is yeah, this ahead. is one of the biggest um, kind of uh, wake up moments for me, yeah. and I think I've shared this story with you before. Um, but I want to tell you the story of a homeless um, a family that immigrated to the United States, and and this is a long time ago. So they actually came in through Ellis Island into New York City. Um, and uh, they were uh, looking for the promised land, and it turned out it wasn't what people thought. It was actually poverty and the squalor in New York City during that time. And so they struggled, but the hope was for the next generation. And their kids had a chance to get education. They went to school, and their one son, whose name was Art, was like like super smart. Turned out like he probably would have been off the chart if he took an IQ test. And so Art uh, ended up doing well in school, and he graduated top of his class. And there was no money for college back then, so he ended up going right into the work field. And he began to work in a factory, but somehow within six months, they realized he could do anything in this factory, including repair all the machines. So suddenly he's promoted to foreman, factory director. He gets married. He got married right away. Um, they had two daughters. Now the next generation immigrants, he's climbing the ladder and doing really well. But he began in his 20s with the stress of work to stop at the bar on the way home. And then he would stop longer. And then he would sometimes not come home Friday and he would blow the paycheck. And so eventually... They were in poverty, and they got um, evicted from their apartment. And back then, they could just take their furniture and put it on the sidewalk. And that's what happened. And then he ended up on the streets, uh, homeless, alcoholic, uh, families living in the projects now, struggling. The two daughters grew up without their dad there, got married at age 18 to get out of there. And uh, Art's just gone. He's lost. And then one day, he comes into a mission for the 500th time and hears that God loves him in his condition. And he for some reason, heard it deep in his heart, and he surrendered his life to God. And he was transformed. The guy was still smart, practically memorized the Bible. He started going out in the streets and pulling men and women, saying, you got to hear this message, you got to hear this message. <laughs> and then he, now what about his family? Well, his wife had never divorced him, never had money. His daughters are married now and have kids. He's a grandfather. So he begins to reach out. You can guess nobody wants anything to do with him. Yeah. You ruined our lives. You're Nobody changes, but he warmed down and eventually got reconciled with his wife, and then he pursued his daughters. And his one daughter lived about 300 miles away. But when he got there, he would—he had grandkids, and he uh, he decided to take the, begin to take them fishing. So they'd go to this little lake and rent a boat, and they'd go out fishing. So um, there's one particular grandson that he got really attached to, and so they would go up. When the sun was rising, they would go out in this fishing boat and sit in the boat and put the worm on the hook and, and fish— and he would tell them stories about Jesus from the Gospels. Like, remember the time they were in the boat and they caught all these fish? <laughs> remember the time? And he would just pour into his grandson. Um, well, uh, he died of a, suddenly of a heart attack because he had abused his body for decades. And, and so, you know, it's a great story of this family reconciled. Now, your listeners uh, don't know Art, but they all will know the name of the grandson who was in the boat with them. Every one of your listeners will know this person when I say his name because his name is Craig Mays. Hmm. That's my grandfather. I didn't know any of this story until I was an adult. And I can hear his voice, and I can picture his face. He was a beautiful man. Um, so when I began to work in the city with the homeless, and I would, they would be lined up to come inside, and they would smell of alcohol and puke, you know who I saw? Oh, man. 
I, I saw not just my grandfather, because I loved him and I missed him. I was 12 when he died and I cried for weeks. <laughs> He's a beautiful man. Um, but I saw, I saw grandson or granddaughters that these people didn't even know they had. So is this someone worth pouring your life into and giving second, third, tenth chances, not judging them, not categorizing them, not pushing them away, but to pour into their life? And, and so that's the work Jesus has called me to. Um, my wife and I in New York City right now, but you know the reality is there's poverty right here around us. Yeah. In Metro Detroit, where we're talking right now, there's opportunity to step into the margins with people, and it's not just homeless. I know that you're, this table is a broad table, right? and we're thinking about everybody that we want to see at the table, but when you realize they have stories, and yeah. they have relatives, and yeah. they have histories, and they have futures, him coming to Christ through people that loved on him affected my life, because his wife, my grandma, is the one that um, encouraged me to go into ministry. And paid the first year of college, so I would go to the right. I would go to a college, wow. and I was going to bail after one year, and then got got a hold of my life. You think of the ripple effect when you yeah. touch one life, right? So that still is a story in my life. It's my own journey. It's my own family that marks me. Gosh, and I'm grateful for your grandfather. Mm. <laughs> you know, for the impact you've had on my life. Mm. Wow, man, it's just that's stunning. That's a stunning mm. way to finish this podcast. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, thank you for. You always have great wisdom. Thank you for your heart for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your heart for people. Thank you for your mentorship. Um, yeah, you you you, just, you really do have a way about you that that shows me that you do spend time with God and mm-hmm. that you do are asking Him, Lord, I want to walk with you today and show me. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, Amen. friend. All right, thank you for inviting me to. This has been fun. Yeah. Let's do it again. <laughs> we will. <laughs> believe I'm going to forget that phrase, now, here, nowhere. Be now here. Don't be distracted by somewhere else. And so let's be present. I hope you take that with you. I want to thank Craig Mays for his incredible leadership, his insights, and his thoughts. I do hope that they impacted you, convicted you. And when you leave the table today and go out into your context, you are fully present and your eyes are wide open to the people that are around you. As we always say, we would love for you to be connected more and more to the Open Table Collective. So please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, go to our website, theopentablecollective.com, or sign up for our texting community at 248-422-0082. But once again, we want to thank you for being here, and we look forward to you pulling up a seat to the next Open Table Collective podcast. We'll see you very soon.